0: section 24 of tom petrie's reminiscences of early queensland this is a librivox recording All librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org tom petrie's reminiscences of early queensland part 1 chapter 24 nowadays it is a common enough sight to see natives marshal together and taking part in a procession but when the late duke of edinburgh then prince alfred came to visit brisbane in 1868, such a thing had never been seen before in queensland father who had then been living at north pine for some nine years went into brisbane to see the duke's arrival and mr tiffin the government architect Coming to him the evening before the great event asked if he could manage somehow to gather a number of blacks together as a sort of novel welcome to the duke it wanted then but an hour to sundown so there was not much time but as luck would have it a native passed on his way to camp soon afterwards and my father speaking to him asked if he would tell the rest of the blacks to come in early and bring their spears waddies, shields boomerangs etc also some kuchi and white clay with which to decorate themselves in the morning the natives turned up about sixty of them and it was a piece of work to get them all painted and fixed up to represent the different tribes when that was done i told them says father what to do and how to march and follow me and i had just got them ready when the procession came in sight near the post-office coming along queen street so i hurried the darkies off in a trot to meet it i had already told off one black fellow to go to the arch near the post-office telling him that a man there would show him how to get up and which way to stand and hold his boomerang and i impressed upon him that he must stand steady and make no movement until the whole procession had passed through under the arch as i hurried my regiment along through the crowd in order to reach the landing-place near the gardens in time the ladies cried out about their dresses saying they would be spoilt and dirtied with the paint of the darkies but my followers took no notice of this rushing on excitedly after me. We arrived just in time to allow me to place them properly. Two I put on the arch erected there, one on each side, each with a boomerang in his hand, held as though ready to throw, and the others I placed on either side of the landing stage. They looked very well, with their weapons and shields poised warlike fashion, and some had parrots feathers up and down in strips on their bodies and others had swans down some were painted one exact half white and the other black others the same but red and white some were all black with white spots and others had white stripes etc as the duke stepped ashore i saw him look first to one side at the blacks and then to the other as he walked through them then up at the archway and he was gone. The Darkies asked which was the Duke. And when I told them the man in plain clothes, they were surprised and said he was the same as another white man. They thought the one with the cocked hat and the bright things on his shoulders and glittering buttons was the Duke. After this, I pushed my men through the crowd and, getting to the front, marched them alongside the First Division. As we went along, I got them to give a regular war whoop every now and then. And it was amusing to see how the people on the sideways and the balconies gave a jump every time at the sound. Then I got them to sing their war song. As we passed under the arch in Queen Street, the darky there stood still as a statue. He told me afterwards that he was afraid to look down on the crowd lest he should tumble amongst them when we arrived at the entrance gate to government house i stationed my regiment thirty on each side standing at ease the duke's carriage and the rest passed through and when all was over and the vehicles and societies had turned back to parade down the streets again i kept my lot behind then marched down george and queen street the blacks giving their war cry and song as they went The people were pleased at this and those on the balconies kept throwing down oranges and biscuits which the darkies caught in great glee for their part in the proceedings that day the blacks were each given half a crown and then they had to end up with three cheers for the queen they enjoyed it all so much that they said to me in their own tongue that they would like to march every day and wanted to know if they'd come again tomorrow I said no that was all i wanted with them just then so off they went merrily to spend their half-crowns not waiting even to wash off their paint and every day march would have been all very well for them but poor me i got nothing for my trouble my father deserves some recognition for all he has done for his country gratuitously for instance he has opened up lots of roads The present one from brisbane to humpibong was marked by him right from bald hills to the sea when he first came to north pine there were no roads of course but just a timber track from bald hills to brisbane for his own convenience he therefore marked a road from the pine to reach this which is the present one in use to bald hills at one time he had two or three tracks cut through the scrub at south pine before his arrival, anyone travelling from the direction of Marumba had to go up to Sidling Creek to get on to the old Northern Road to Brisbane. Then the first picnic party who ever went to Humpybong, Sir James Garrick and some other gentlemen, came to him and got him to pilot them through the bush to the coast. Later on, he marked a tree line when the father of the late Hon. T. J. Burns inquired about land for cattle father took him down to the lagoons on the way to Humpibong, and there the irishman afterwards took up country and settled he also took him to Humpibong and showed him the old brick kiln made in the time of the convict settlement there the bricks were good and patrick burns made use of some of them for his chimney a chimney round which afterwards the future premier played Still later, again, my father marked the present road to Humpibong, when it was made shorter by the bridge across Hayes Inlet. In those days, a company started growing cotton at Cobulcher. They came to father and asked if he could find them a shorter way to their plantation than the track which went away round by Sidling Creek. So he marked the present road to Moray Field. Then from there he marked the road for Captain Wish to his property. Also he showed Captain Townsend the land that gentleman took up on the Caboolture and marked his road, which is the present Caboolture Road crossing the bridge. The road to Narangba was marked by him, also the one from South Pine to Cassius Crossing, and from the Lagoons on the old Northern Road to Terrace Creek on the Upper Pine. The latter has since been altered. When Davis, or Durham boy, was asked to mark a road to Gympie, he sought my father's assistance for the first part of the way, saying he would know where he was all right when he got to the Glasshouse Mountains, as he had been there before when living with the blacks. So father took him to the other side of Caboolture, and put him in party on his, Tom Petrie's, marked tree line to Petrie's Creek on the Maruchi River. Then, when the line to Gimpy was marked, he went with Covenco to help them pick out stopping places for the changing of horses. The road was just frightful at that time. We in these days could not recognise it for the same. When quite a youngster, my father marked a road for the squatters from Cleveland Point to the Eight Mile Plains, so that they could bring their wool down to the store at Cleveland, Also when a boy, he piloted the first picnic party through the bush to where Sandgate is now, though he did not mark the road to that place. Surveyors have often come for a talk with my father, and they always used his marked lines. When the present railway line to Gympie was being surveyed, he went with the surveyors to show them the different ways to caboolture and he accompanied his friend Mr. George Phillips, C.E. to Gimpy, traversing the different trial lines. Also, he showed the surveyors the proposed line to Humpibong. In 1877, during the Douglas Ministry, the first reserve for Aborigines was formed. Deciding that there should be such a reserve, the late hon j douglas and several ministers of the crown journeyed by steamer to bribey island in order to pick a suitable spot there they were accompanied by my father who because of his intimate knowledge of the blacks was asked by the government to supervise the workings of the reserve and encourage the natives to settle there arriving in bribey passage anchor was dropped opposite the white patch and the whole party went ashore, including several blackfellows who'd been brought down in the steamer. These and others who were on the island were got together and the Premier spoke and explained what the government meant to do for them, saying that my father would overlook everything. The latter gentleman interpreted what the Premier said, and the darkies were very pleased at the idea, cheering the party when they were leaving and waving to the steamer till it was out of sight the blacks on this reserve were supplied under my father's management with a boat a fishing net harpoons for dugongs and other necessaries and they had to work in exchange for their rations catching fish and curing them and making dugong shark and stingery oils these and sometimes a turtle were all sold in Brisbane in exchange for the rations, which afterwards were doled out to the blacks by an old man who with his wife was engaged to live on the island. Father went about once a month to see that all was well. When he first mustered the blacks, there were about 50, some of these being very old women. In winter time, the blacks caught great hauls of sea mullet, And at other times there were other fish, etc., and everything went well, and the settlement bid fair to become self supporting when, in 1879, the McElraith government did away with the whole thing. My father asked what was to become of the old men and women. Oh, let them go and work like anybody else, was the reply. What is to happen to the boat and fishing net? oh let them have those so the news had to be told to the blacks who were all very miserable about it and the old gins cried and asked how they were going to get anything to eat their friend told them to cheer up he was sure the others would not see them want no but they will take us back to brisbane and when there they will get drunk and beat us we would like to stay here where we are happy There is no drinking of grog here, nor fighting. I cannot help it, Father had to tell them. I have got orders from the government to break up the settlement, and so it has to be. Several gentlemen in Brisbane at that time, among them a Church of England bishop, were very much interested in favour of this settlement for blacks, and were much against the ending of the concern. However, it had to be. It was a pity, as it was quite true what the Jinns had said, and many deaths occurred in drunken fights. Numbers of those blacks might have been alive today. My father asked the government during the life of the settlement for authority to keep blacks from the city where they could get drink, but this was not granted. His powers for good were limited, as he had no fixed salary and no free passes some of the brisbane tribe would not go to the island as they could get drink in brisbane making the excuse that they would not be happy away from their native part during the time of this settlement a scotch priest named father MacNab came to north pine to my father and stayed a few days getting information about the blacks ways and language saying he wished to go to Braby Island and see what he could do in the way of teaching religion there. So during my father's presence at the island, he arrived one day with a man, and they pitched their tent nearby the blacks' camp. Next morning, gathering the natives together, he talked to them and showed them pictures, explaining what they meant. The listeners appeared attentive at first, but it soon became apparent that the work was useless. One morning, the priest told my father afterwards, while he was holding prayers, a black named Prince Willie came to join him with his pipe in his mouth. The priest remonstrated, telling Willie it was wicked to smoke at prayers. Father MacNab said the man, I smoke when I like. And so things went on for a good while, till the priest, finding he could do no good, gave up the attempt altogether in the meantime though during one of his visits to the island while the priest was absent in brisbane my father came upon prince Willie, with all the blacks and gins gathered round him acting father MacNab's part there he was with an old book from which he pretended to read jabbering away like a parrot and he had water at his side in which he dipped his hand and then sprinkled the blacks he was about to name He made these latter cross themselves, and then others he married with a ring. The white man had to laugh till his sides were sore at the way the absurd fellow went on, although he felt he should not. And there were the rest of the blacks, simply rolling on the ground with laughter. A native's sense of humour is very keen. I tried to be serious, father says, and told them it was very wrong of them to mock a minister, as his wish was to make them better. But one might just as well have tried to make a stone speak as try to convert those blacks. During the years of my father's management at Bribey Island, there were only two or three deaths there. One, he remembers, was that of a very old gin, another that of Abraham, the coxswain of the fishing boat. The latter took dropsy and his legs swelled to a great size the poor fellow when father was leaving the island one day asked him to bring back a watermelon next time he fancied it would make him better but when the next time came he was dead his people skinned him but said they did not eat him their friend had his doubts about the latter fact They skinned him, because he was the son of one of the great men of the island, and they wished to give his relatives the skin. They came and said they wanted to go over to the north point of Humpibong, because some Durandor blacks were camped there, and the friends of the dead one were among them. So my father took them over and went to the camp with them. On the way, three of the Durandor blacks and some gins came to meet the old woman who carried the skin. And when she showed the dilly they all commenced to wail and cry and cut their heads the men with tomahawks and the women with their yam sticks blood flowed freely the sight was a terrible one and the sound of the crying was awful the other blacks then rushed and took the weapons from these mourners who gradually became quiet enough to talk over the death and the supposed cause of it they blamed a black fellow called Piper, by the whites, and they swore they would kill this man at the first opportunity. Then the dilly was opened, and a small one inside containing four pieces of skin was given to an old woman of the Durandor tribe, a relative of the deceased. Gathering up their belongings then, they all went on to camp, crying again as they went after this my father left these blacks who however stayed on where they were a while and about a week later piper himself happened to turn up he came with a few maroochee blacks and camped alongside the bribe lot so it was arranged that one night a man of bribe called dungan or pilot by the whites would sneak up in the darkness to piper and kill him this was tried but as it turned out piper was not asleep and the blow missed its aim and therefore as pilot retreated he in his turn was struck at and received an awful tomahawk cut at the back of the knee father sawed this cut two days afterwards and it seemed to him that the leg was almost severed the man could not move then however he recovered in the end "'though he was always lame. name. "'At the time, Father said to him, "'How is it you made such a mess of things?' "'The reply was that the man was too quick, "'and the moment he struck, he ran away "'and was not captured, though some chased. "'However, they would have him yet.' "'Piper got back to Marucci among his friends "'and stayed there a long time "'until he thought the feeling against him had been forgotten.' He was the black fellow who murdered a botanist at Malula. On this account, he had been an outlaw, Talabilla as the natives called it, for a good many years. Then he was captured and tried and acquitted, because of the long interval between the trial and murder, the latter could not be brought home to him properly. Some time after the bribery affair, he came into Brisbane with a number of others to attend a corroboree. AND CAMPED AT Kedron Brook WITH SOME DURRINDOR BLACKS, THINKING HE'LL BE SAFEST WITH THEM. BUT ONE OF THESE BLACKS, CALLED SAMBO, A FRIEND OF THE DEAD ABRAHAM, HAD BEEN ON THE WATCH, AND ACTUALLY HAD BEEN CARRYING ABOUT POISON FOR PIPER, THINKING HE WAS TOO SMART FOR ANOTHER DEATH. THIS POISON WAS WHAT THE WHITE MEN USED FOR NATIVE DOGS, AND DOUBTLESS IT HAD BEEN GOT AT SOME STATION so Sambo obtained a little rum and, mixing in the poison, offered Piper a drink. The unsuspecting black fellow had a good drink, then handed the bottle to another man, with the result that they both died. Sambo had not intended the second death, of course. An inquiry was held in Brisbane on this poisoning affair, and my father interpreted for the blacks, However, Sambo could be found nowhere, and the matter had to drop. Such was the end of Piper the murderer, and such was often the way in which a black fellow would be hunted to his death by his fellow blacks, for a deed of which he was perfectly innocent, though he may have been guilty enough in other ways. End of Part 1 Chapter 24